and welcome to Fetch the Smelling Salt. I'm Alice Nagel. And I'm Kimberly Marsh, and this is our podcast all about historical dramas, from movies and TV shows to miniseries, from every era and all around the world. And now spooky season is done. Yes. It's never really done in our hearts. No, it's not. Never. But it's autumnal still. It is. Mm -hmm. And we're moving into November, Mm. which is when everyone's wearing those little poppies if you live in Britain. Yes. If you live in Britain and you're on the TV, it is mandated. You have to wear a little poppy on your lapel. Mm -hmm. And so I have a question for you, Kim. Are you sad about the war? I am sad about the war because... I will. No, I am sad about the war and I do wear a poppy, but I wear a purple poppy actually. Because. Oh, what does that mean? Mm-hmm, it's to remember the animals who died during the war. So, oh, well, now you've made me more sad I about know, war. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, okay, you know so what? We've we just established you're sad. sad. Yes. Yes. Sad about war. And are you sad about the treatment of homosexuals in the past oh my god i'm so sad this is so fucking ridiculous and guys the film we're gonna talk about it's a beautiful film and you know i've seen it a few times and each time i watch it i cry i like i legit cry and it really got me down but it's i mean i just think it's a beautiful film but we're gonna go into it a little bit more shall we tell you what film it is yeah we are covering The Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. And this is a biopic, this is a proper biopic of scientist, computer scientist Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. So we've both seen this film before. Yes. And it is on Netflix. It's on, at least in the UK, it's Mm -hmm. on Netflix. Yep. So if you like a World War II drama, this is a really brilliant one to be watching around this time of year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so good. I love it. it. I love it. No, I, you yeah, love, I it. love it. I love it. There is so much to love about this film. And I think it would actually pair really well in a double feature with another recent series mm-hmm. called Bletchley Circle. Yes. Which actually mostly takes place a few years after the end of the war. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's set in 1952 to 53. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they do flashbacks. Yeah. But that also centers around... Bletchley Park Codebreakers. And I've been to Bletchley Park. I've actually been there a couple <gasps> of times. I would highly recommend it. It is... So where is it in the country? Okay, so I live in Oxford. Is it kind right? of... Is it, yeah. It's not far. It's south. <laughs> I know nothing. Okay. I, I remember it's also not very far from Milton Keynes because I remember we kind of stopped by there. So I know nothing. I don't drive. Okay, I have no sense of where anything is. But I can tell you, it's south. It is a day, an easy day trip if you live in Oxfordshire, for example. But it's known for being kind of a middle of nowhere place. Yes, exactly. And you know, I I always talk to my colleagues about this, right? I mean, my my British colleagues about this. And they were saying about how, you know, what's so amazing about it is that they managed to keep it a secret for so long. Like, it's it's a very large complex, you know, when you go in. Um, and all the little huts and everything. And it's it's just amazing that no one knew that this was there and what was going on. It kind of made sense when you watch the film and there's references to it being called what the Bletchley battery factory or something like that right i think Um, a radio radio factory that's it yeah so it's not as if like people they were hiding the fact that there was something there because that would be weird you know if you're gonna see cars and stuff driving in and out but yeah it's 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 a very very interesting place it's kind of paired with the national computing national museum of computing or something. I mean, so like Bletchley Park in and of itself, like is a place to visit and kind of like next to it is this other museum, which is equally interesting. It makes sense why why these two things are paired together uh, when we talk a little bit more about Alan Turing, which this movie mm-hmm. is about. Yeah. So shall we get into the summary of the film then? Yes, let's do that. All right, um, listeners, so the film kind of goes back and forth between three periods, okay? So there's the 1920s, 
where we kind of see snippets of the life of a young schoolboy, Alan Turing. And then you have the years of World War II, during which he worked at Bletchley Park. And then it also flashes forward, in a sense, to the early 1950s, where he's being investigated by the police. Okay, so it's going to be a lot of like flashback, flash forward, you know. All right, so the film opens in 1951 in Manchester, with Turing being uh, interrogated by a policeman to whom he begins to tell the story of his life. So sometime back, that policeman and another officer had visited Turing's house to investigate a reported break-in. So this break-in was reported not by Turing, but by a neighbor who heard like the ruckus. So curiously, um, Turing insists that nothing was taken. And he seems rather keen to get rid of, of the policeman, making knock... Um, who's like the name of this this guy, this, this police person, dude, uh, making Nock suspicious about what Turing was hiding, kind of like thus beginning his own little investigation. So now we kind of flash back, in a sense, to 1939. So war has broken out in England, uh, and we see Alan Turing applying for the role of cryptographer at what we now know to be Bletchley Park. The interviewer, a Commander Dennison, is instantly turned off by Turing's seemingly awkward and arrogant demeanor. But just as he was about to turn away, Turing reveals that he is aware of the project to break the German Enigma machine. So this is essentially a top-secret project to try to decode Nazi intelligence. So obviously, Turing is hired, but he's forced to work uh, within a cryptography team of... Hugh Alexander, who leads the team at first, uh, John Canecross, Peter Hilton, Keith Furman, and Charles Richards. We are also introduced to an MI6 agent whose name is, well, his name is Stu, his first name is Stuart, but his last name is spelled M-E-N-Z-I-E-S. However, in the movie, we would think it's pronounced Menzies. <laughs> But in the movie, they seem to pronounce it a different way, and I never quite caught it. But because it's a feminist pro- uh, podcast, I'm choosing to pronounce it as Menzies. I support that fully. Okay, so, you know, so Stuart Menzies. Um, so yeah, we're introduced to him, and he's an MI6 agent who's kind of like overlooking this little experiment of sorts, you know? Anyway, so Turing ends up working alone to design a machine to decipher Enigma messages and in my favorite filmic device, if you can call it a device, we have a montage. I love, you know, I love me a montage. I just love montages. Historical montages. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Taking us through historical events. Exactly. You know, like music and little scenes and more music. So anyway. So in this montage, we see Alan Turing running and he's running and he's drawing up the plans for his machine and he's running and he's drawing up more plans. So that's what he does, right? Anyway, designs now completed. Turing requests a hundred thousand pounds. So that's a hundred thousand pounds, right? In 1941, and Alice has looked it up. And it's kind of, you know, the equivalent of four million pounds in today's money, okay? Which, for a big government project, actually now doesn't seem like that much money. Uh, Yeah, that's true. But he's building this machine, right? And no one even knows it's going to work. So that's the thing. If it's a big government project that they kind of have planned out and they're doing it, that's fine, right? It's this one singular dude, you know, as he's running and drawing things on pieces of paper, which he sticks on his wall... And he comes up to you and he's like, dude, I want four million pounds to build this machine that I have like created in my head. I'm really good at crossword puzzles. Give me four million pounds and I'm going to build a machine. Exactly. So he, he tries to get, get this money. Obviously, his request is denied. Undeterred, he decides to write to none other than Prime Minister at the time, bloody Winston Churchill himself. Because why the hell not? An old churchy boy responds, <laughs> yes, with not only the money, but also a note that Alan Turing is now to be made in charge of the whole project. Meanwhile, back in Manchester in the 50s, so Nock, our suspicious policeman, is looking into Turing's past. 
and he finds out that his war records are totally blank. But at that moment, I had that little scene from Parks and Recs, you know, don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious. You know, you know that scene? No, no, never mind. Anyway, totes suspicious. I'm sure I've seen it. Ah, it's all right. We're gonna, I'm sure we're gonna put it on Instagram somehow. I will find it for you. I'll make it happen. Totes suspicious, right? So apparently Alan Turing has like nada, you know, in terms of his war records. So now we get this f- total flashback to the Sherbourne school where a young Alan Turing, he's being bullied. Horribly, horribly bullied. Uh, but thankfully, he forms a friendship with a boy called Christopher, who also kind of sparks his interest in cryptography. So we'll just leave it there for now. So back in Blatchley, Turing, having fired two members of the team, like the moment he became boss, he was like, right, you guys are out because you suck. So he devises a little awesome, amazing plan to recruit more people. So he puts out a crossword puzzle in the newspapers with a request for anyone who's able to solve it in a certain amount of time to write in. Eventually, another young man and... Hold on to your seats. A woman. A woman? Yes. With boobs? Mm Mm-hmm, with boobs and everything. Uh, Boobs and real menzies. (gasps) No, ew. She'll be bleeding all over the place. She'll get it all over the war. I know. Ugh. So, yep. So, she is none other than Joan Clark. Double first graduate in math from Cambridge. And however... Question. Hmm. Sorry, I'm sorry. Aside. No, no, no. What is a double first? To me, it sounds like she got a first in two things at the same time. That's what I thought. In maths. Yeah, that's what I thought, right? When you say a double first, I always thought it was like, that means a double major. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm maths just, I'm just and... repeating what I'm told, man. I will look up. Okay. Not right now, but I will. Anyway. She did she, two undergraduate maths degrees she's smart. at the she's same smart. time. She's super smart. <laughs> Right, so smart, smart, smart. She's double smart. She's double smart, but because she is a woman, and therefore it is, you know, it is undecorous for her to live and work with men, you know, according to her parents, Turing makes arrangements for her to kind of basically live and work with the uh, female clerks who are in charge of, you know, intercepting the messages. And what he does is that he has his little secret nighttime rendezvous with her uh, where he kind of climbs up into her room and they sit down and they discuss ways to crack the code as well as his plans to build a digital computer and she's like did our brains just make out i know amazing so anyway the two of them end up forming a really really sweet friendship and clark even helps turing to kind of connect with his fellow colleagues It's not all roses, however, as the machine, while built, doesn't seem to be able to really do what it's supposed to do. I mean, it keeps just going and going and like nothing's being produced. So Alan and his team are given a month before the entire operation is going to be like called off. Also, we find out that there is a Russian spy at Bletchley and Turing is apparently the prime suspect. To top things off, Clark eventually tells Turing that her parents want her to quit her job and get married. Like a licensed <laughs> woman. Oh my god. In what can only be described as a cartoon scene, yeah. Sushi just took a meatball out of my Tupperware of spaghetti meatballs that I was eating out of that I left over on the couch. He took a meatball out of it and ran away. <laughs> Sneaky bastard. Okay, I know I shouldn't be leaving spaghetti and meatballs on the couch, and that's on me. But that's really, really cheeky because I was so excited about those meatballs. They are all beef meatballs. I got them on sale because you know your girl don't fuck with pork. Mm -mm. And he's just walked away with a whole one in his mouth. He's just like, yes, 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 yes. And Mochi ran after him. Like, me too, guys. Right. Where was I? Back to the film. Back to the film. To top things off, Clark tells Turing that her parents want her to quit her job and get married. So desperate for her to stay, Turing convinces her to marry him instead. However, at their little engagement party, he confides to Canros 
that he is dot 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 gay horror oh my god horror horror so Cadross reminds him that under no circumstances is he to tell anyone this because being gay was a punishable crime back then so now we kind of flash back to the schoolboy days where young Turing has fallen in love with dear wonderful Christopher and he eagerly awaits his who return. wouldn't I know Christopher was so sweet Right, and you know, it's like, oh, so yeah, so you know, yeah, he is, he's fallen in love, he has a little uh, coded message saying I love you, and he eagerly awaits uh, Christopher's return from school break. Now, over in 1950s uh, Manchester, Turing has now been taken into custody, because without these war records, he's now being suspected of having been a Soviet spy. So he, you know, so he gets being suspected of being a Russian spy in Bletchley, and now in 1950s is the same thing. So mm. back in Bletchley, Turing hears Hugh Alexander's flirty conversations with a female clerk about some messages um, she kind of intercepts from a German coder. This leads him to the epiphany that he only needs to think about the same words that will always be repeated in certain messages. Those words turn out to be the weather and hail Hitler. So using that, I know, right? He's like, hail bloody Hitler. So using that, he's able to program his machine, which he has named Christopher, to help decode the day's messages. So they all run back to the hut and the plan works. So working through the night, the team decodes all these messages from the day and they learn that a British passenger convoy is about to be attacked. Just as the others are about to inform um, the commander about this, Turing stops them, explaining that he's that doing this will reveal to the Germans that they have broken the Enigma code and which will lead them to immediately change the machine that they're using to code the messages. The rest of them agree, except for young Peter, whose brother was a serviceman on one of the ships that was about to be attacked. So despite his desperate pleas, Turing and the team decide that they have to let the attack happen. So essentially, this guy is just there and he knows his father, his brother is going to die any moment. So the next day, Clark and Turing tell our dear friend Menzies about their discovery <laughs> and Turing's plan to develop a statistical model to decide which warnings to send to the British military to maximize Nazi destruction while minimizing their chances of discovery. So he, our MI6 agent, agrees with their plan. So sometime later, Turing discovers that the Russian spy in their midst was none other than Canross. Canross, sorry. When confronted, he then blackmails Turing into secrecy by threatening to expose his secret, right? You know, that he's gay. However, when Menzies decides to make it seem that he is uh, suspicious of Clark or being the spy, Turing ends up telling him the truth. But then Menzies says, yeah, dude, I already knew this. And I have been using Kane Ross to leak information to the Soviets for England's benefit. So essentially, Turing got played. So fearing that his relationship with Clark could be used against her, Turing tries to essentially get her to leave Blatchley. You know, he even um, reveals to her that he's gay. So she is unfazed at first, stating that there has to be a different kind of marriage. You know, so it's really wonderful. But then he even goes on to lie, saying that he, you know, he never cared for her. He was only using her for her uh, cryptography skills. Angry and heartbroken, she decides that, you know what, screw it. Like, screw it and screw you. I'm not going to leave because this is the most important work I will ever do in my life. Like, screw you, screw my parents, screw everybody else. I'm fucking staying here. So That was so sad. And it was so, so sad. I'm so glad they stayed friends. Yeah. No, it's really After sweet. After that. Yeah, very, very sweet. So the war ends. And in a voiceover, Turing lists some of the major victories that would not have been possible without their work. So that, that was a really touching scene when you think about it too. So dear old Menzies orders the team to destroy their work because no one can know that they were able to break these code machines. Yeah. So back in Manchester, Turing has finished telling his story to a very bewildered knock. 
who says it is not his place to judge him. And in this very sad flashback, we see young Turing being told by his headmaster that his dear friend Christopher was not coming back to school because he had died of tuberculosis while on holiday with his family. So it's just horrible. So now we're in 1952. Clark, who still has still state friends with Turing, visits him. And we find out that Turing has been charged and convicted of gross indecency. And as punishment for his so-called crime, you know, he was, he was going to be uh, given a prison sentence, but he chose chemical castration instead. So the drugs have affected him both physically and mentally. And in a heartbreaking scene, Turing reveals that, you know, despite what, you know, his suffering, he has to stay on them so he can continue to work with his beloved machine, Christopher. Without whom, like without whom, in a sense, he would be utterly alone. So Clark comforts him by reminding him of his contributions and the fact that his work has essentially saved millions of lives. So in an epilogue, we find out that Turing dies by suicide a year into his government-mandated hormonal therapy. We are also told that between the, year, the years of 1885 and 1967, approximately 49,000 gay men were convicted of gross indecency by British law. In 2013, Queen Elizabeth II, the late Queen, granted Turing a posthumous royal pardon to honour his work, um, which would eventually go on to create the modern computer. So yeah, and Kim is in tears. The end. Mm. Yeah, it's just sad. It's just sad and horrible, and Benedict Cumberbatch did an amazing job. He did. Before I get into some of the historical context mm -hmm. and stuff, I want to mention that Benedict Cumberbatch said himself that toward the end of the film, when Turing is having these breakdowns and there are these very, very emotional scenes mm -hmm. just before his death, Cumberbatch said that these breakdowns were real. He was really emotionally affected. And he said it came from basically being, and I quote, being an actor or a person that has grown incredibly fond of the character and thinking mm. what he had suffered and how that had affected him. Gosh. So the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch got so invested in this character, mm -hmm. I think really comes through in the film. Yeah, definitely. No, amazing. I think he, he did an amazing job. I think he did an incredible job. All the acting is really great in this film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I love it so much. And that's why it really pains me to tell you that, in fact, it's not a very true telling of Alan Turing's life or his time during the war. Okay, tell me, tell me. I'm ready for it. So there are loads of things that are, like the bare bones of it are factual, mm -hmm. that he did go to the Sherborne School, mm -hmm. and he did have a friend called Christopher, who died. Mm -hmm. He did do he did participate in code breaking at Bletchley Park mm -hmm. in Hut Eight with that team, mm -hmm. with Joan Clark and a bunch of these other people. He was investigated after a burglary in his home, mm -hmm. and eventually convicted for homosexuality, I'm going to say. I don't know the yeah. exact law. Gross indecency, you yeah. said. Mm -hmm. um, because the person who had robbed him was his lover, and that yeah. came out during the investigation. And he did die in June of 1954. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I have here is from a really cool website, first of all, called Information is Beautiful, which oh, does like a awesome. percentage rating for period dramas that are based on a true story. So mm. biopics, but also things like Selma or 12 Years a Slave. Oh. Um, and so they do a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of what is true and what isn't. And you can actually choose your level of pedantry. Oh my God, that's amazing. That you want to do. Yeah, it's a really great... Yeah, so it's information is beautiful. And the most generous score they give the imitation game is 42.3% accurate. Ooh. 
which is the lowest scoring film that they review. Yeesh. And this actually is considered one of the most historically inaccurate biopics kind of ever. Wow. Okay. So for my little research, I also used a Screen Rand article mm-hmm. by Shaurya Tapa from June of 2023. And uh, she discusses some of the changes the film makes, um, kind of comparing especially the biography of Turing by Andrew Hodges, on which the film is loosely inspired. Right. So first things first. The movie makes it seem like Alan Turing was like this mastermind behind breaking the Enigma code and inventing and basically mm. building by hand the machine mm-hmm. that did it, which he called Christopher in the film. Yeah. Um, this is probably the biggest inaccuracy in the film. So actually, the first people to work on cracking the Enigma code before the war even started and building a machine to do it, mm-hmm. to try to help them do it, were a team from the Polish Cypher Bureau. Ah, uh, yes, I read about them, yeah. Yeah, bit. so so it was basically Polish intelligence who did so much of this groundwork mm-hmm. that Bletchley Park couldn't have... They didn't build any of this from the ground up. Mm. They couldn't have done any of what they did without so much in terms of intelligence and cryptography and hardware without the Polish Cypher Bureau, especially these three guys, Marian Rejewski, Jerzy Rzycki, and Henryk Zagowski. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank my friend Mally for those Polish pronunciations. Brilliant. Uh, so they made a machine called the Bomba, and they actually shared with British and French intelligence in July 1939 everything that they had learned, basically, and the designs for the Bomba. And this was only about five weeks before the war started. And they actually, with the Bomba, cracked an earlier version of the Enigma code, because in the film they talk about how the Germans will change and develop the code Mm. over time as well. And the British, including Alan Turing at Bletchley Park, Mm -hmm. also before the war and during the war, Mm -hmm. used this to improve upon the Bomba machine and create their own machine, which unfortunately wasn't called Christopher. It was just called the Bomb. Spelled mm. B-O-M-B-E. Mm-hmm. Not as cute as Christopher, if you ask no. me. And you've seen the actual machine, I've right? I've seen machines. I just can't remember what it's been. It was so many years ago. Um, yeah, there, there are quite a few machines. So they have the little, the, you know, you have the little Enigma machine and you have like this, the huge, yeah. I remember seeing, and I've just looked it up. Yeah, what I saw was the the bomb, the bomba, the bomba. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Too. So it's it, guys go go to go to Bletchley Park, man. But but you, you love need to a do. good headspace because there's so much information to take in. You know, there's just so much information to just like woof, to try to understand. So what, what we'll happening. do, we'll do a little podcast retreat yeah. where we go to a spot, we go to Bath, we go to the spot, and then we go to Bletchley Park, and we just fill our cleared minds with mm-hmm. loads of. British World War II history. Nice. I just read that the machines, they made the machine a bit more like cinematic by making mm-hmm. it bigger and it moved a bit slower so you could see the parts moving and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But other than that, it kind of looked like it. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I said that there there were a lot of the characters in the film were based on real people. But the other biggest difference in the mm-hmm. film is that they... The portrayal that Benedict Cumberbatch brings is of this very unlikable kind of antisocial guy who mm-hmm. really wants to work alone, wants to do everything alone, and doesn't get along with his colleagues. And mm-hmm. that apparently, I was quite happy to read, wasn't the case at all. Oh, okay. So his boss, Dennison, mm-hmm. was actually a nice guy, had no issue with Turing, wasn't a super by-the-book guy. Mm-hmm. And Turing very much worked as part of a team, which he got along with, 
because he was actually, you know, he was known for being socially awkward, mm -hmm. but he was also friendly and funny. Aww. Although I have to say that I think Benedict Cumberbatch does give a performance that like demonstrates this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's especially a warmth in him, with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, especially with his relationship with Joan. There's a scene mm -hmm. in which he is trying to convince her parents that it's okay for her to work at yeah. Fletchley Park. And so he's reading nonverbal cues from mm -hmm. her and he's coming up with lies on the spot mm -hmm. um, or embellishments or whatever. And I think he does a really good job and you see him flourish a lot more socially with Joan. Mm. Joan Clark. Yeah. There's that trope, right? And you see that obviously in like the Big Bang Theory and stuff like that, you know, of this, you know, the genius... Um, the genius character and how they have to be socially awkward they have to be somewhere on the uh, autism spectrum and that's kind of like which uh, which in Hollywood just means kind of being a jerk to everybody yeah apparently. exactly yeah you know well for example there's there's a documentary about Bletchley Park called Station X mm -hmm. um, that's the original kind of British title of it but if you're watching in America it's called Decoding Nazi Secrets mm -hmm. it's from 1999 and they interview teammate uh, Peter Hilton so this is the mm. Peter whose brother died in the film <gasps> apparently he didn't even have a brother yeah okay but but the thing they were referring to the kind of real historical event was mm -hmm. the, the bombing of Coventry Okay. In London, which uh, Churchill has been accused of knowing about beforehand. Right. And and withholding it because they didn't want the Germans to know that they had broken <sighs> the Enigma Code. This has also been discredited mm -hmm. by historians. Apparently, Churchill didn't know that mm. Coventry was going to be bombed. And at any rate, Peter's brother wasn't bombed because mm. he didn't have a brother. Right. Well, good for him. But so it shows the documentary shows Peter Hilton just saying really lovely things about Alan, about what a great teammate he was and what a great person he was. And mm. all of his teammates, if they didn't necessarily get along with him, always really admired him. And they mm. very much worked together as a team. And speaking of Joan Clark on that team, she was actually not a random who was recruited by a crossword puzzle, although mm. that crossword puzzle was a real thing. It was yes, published in the Guardian newspaper. Photo. That's crazy. Yes. So I found it. It's on the internet. We will post it mm -hmm. because the New York Times reprinted it at some point. Um, so that was a real thing. It was a real crossword puzzle that was printed in the Guardian that was meant to recruit people to Bletchley Park. And the idea was that if you could solve this crossword puzzle under test conditions, ah. so the timing was 12 minutes rather right. than six minutes, mm -hmm. that you could be good enough at solving puzzles and using kind of logic that you could be an asset. But Joan Clark was not recruited this way. She was an established mathematician who was actually recruited in the same way that Alan Turing was. Right. He, in the film, shows up and in a very dramatic way says, I'm here because you need me. I don't really mm -hmm. want to be here, but I'm going to help you win the war. When in fact, he was basically pulled from what he was doing at university yeah, at a university where he was working. Because yeah, I was thinking, right, you know, when I was when I was rewatching this, I was like, how is it even possible? It's this like top secret military place, right? How is he even gonna gain entrance, much less meet the, you know, the top commander and going, Bitch, you need me. You know, I was like, yeah, that's exactly. just not gonna happen. Like, you're gonna get shot first, I'm sorry, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before you get through the gates. Mm-hmm. And that made me a little bit annoyed to see that the way they characterized her in the film was that she was a woman who basically, she could go to university, but then it was a full stop. She couldn't do anything after that. She had really strict parents who she lived with, and she mm -hmm. had to abide by their rules. And Alan Turing had to come in and, and like save her from her. this, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, and pull her out, and she was this diamond in the rough, mm-hmm. uh, when in fact she was basically Turing's equal. Mm. She might have had to live in women's quarters. There certainly weren't many other women, if any other women, mm-hmm. on Turing's team working mm-hmm. in Hut 8. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that kind of in terms of her career – and her reputation that she wasn't on the same level as Turing because she absolutely was. Right. And yeah, that's annoying. Another person who was on Alan Turing's level was a guy who was written completely out of the film, which I found really interesting. His name was Gordon Welchman. He mm-hmm. was also a mathematician and cryptographer. So you know at Bletchley Park there are different huts and they're working yeah. in hut eight yeah. in the film. Mm-hmm. And they are doing specifically naval intelligence. Well, Gordon Welchman was the head of Hut 6, and they were doing, like, Air Force intelligence. So they were each other's counterparts, basically. So even at Bletchley Park, they were, like, co-workers and equals. They were both, like, management, basically. And the most amazing thing about this is that Gordon Welchman – looks more like Benedict Cumberbatch than Alan Turing. I know, you sent me that photo, and I was like, first of all, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) Yeah, never heard of him. Yeah. Poor Gordon. I know, poor Gordon. And yes, he looks like, I mean, and yes, Benedict Cumberbatch looks like him. I mean, looks more like him than he does the real Alan Turing. And I'm absolutely not complaining about the casting of Benedict Cumberbatch, whether or not he looks anything like Alan Turing, because... I think the family agreed, the descendants of Alan Mm -hmm. Turing, so the nieces and nephews of Alan Turing, who have been very involved in his legacy, and he has Mm -hmm. a nephew who has written several biographies of him. And they've all said that Benedict Cumberbatch's depiction of him was really good and brought out enough of him that they felt was, like, representative. Good. And... They were happy right. with the portrayal, even if it wasn't, even if he wasn't that socially awkward, even mm-hmm. if he could tell a joke and he was mm-hmm. funny, they still felt that he did a really, really great job. Mm. But he doesn't look like Alan no, Turing, which weird. is fine. Yeah. He doesn't have to. Although he did, apparently, he and his counterpart, his younger counterpart, like the young Alan Turing actor. Who also did a good job. (laughs) Who did a really great Mm -hmm. job. They were Mm -hmm. both incredible actors. They both decided to wear replicas of Alan Turing's real dentures. So Alan Turing wore false teeth. I don't know if you knew this. I did not notice. This in the film. I didn't notice any teeth at all doing anything special. Yeah. But apparently, both actors wore, I'm going to assume, different sets of teeth. Yeah. They didn't share the same <laughs> set of teeth. They got their own. They had the budget for two yeah. <laughs> replica dentures. I don't know, man. But I mean, they, if you spend four million pounds <laughs> trying to bring They just did some, not yeah. have the budget. And once they got <laughs> Benedict on, and uh, Kira Knightley on board, yeah. they were like, you're going to have to share dentures. Yep, so was- um. But these are Alan Turing's real teeth. That's what they looked like. That's crazy. Anyway, I've gotten way off track. (laughs) Great portrayal. But how different would this film have been if they had included Gordon Welchman and had Benedict Cumberbatch play him? Yeah. And then have someone else play Alan Turing. And that got me thinking about who would play Alan Turing if we were kind of basing it Mm -hmm. on not just acting ability, but also looks. Mm Mm-hmm. So and I put this question to you. Yes, and I immediately I was like, I and I sent you I sent you a photo, and I was like, this guy, Michael C. Hall. Mm. He looks like him, guys, and he's British. Yes, and I fucking love him. I love him. I think he's so hot. Oh, he's so good. He's so beautiful. Yeah. I didn't mean to. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to say, and he's British. I meant to say, and he's gay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we we can get into that a bit later. Mm-hmm. But of course, Benedict Cumberbatch is a straight or bisexual, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But 
he's not a homosexual actor. Mm-hmm. But Michael C. Hall is. Yes. So oh, that would have been quote, an interesting right, choice. He's, he's, quote, he's not, quote, all the way heterosexual. <laughs> Who, Benedict Cumberbatch? No, Michael C. Hall. Oh, okay. That's what he said. Yeah. We can work with that. Yeah. So Welchman was part of the team that sent the letter to Churchill asking for the 100,000 pounds. It wasn't just Alan Turing going over everybody's head. And Welchman invented the diagonal board. There's this integral part in the movie where like this guy Hugh comes up and he's like, what if we put it diagonal? Oh, yeah. And you're like, that will change the war. Yeah. Yeah. That, I don't know how that worked, but it was a real thing, um, mm-hmm. a real change that they made to the bomb machine. And that was Welchman's uh, change. Bloody hell. They, they did him dirty, man. Yeah. You know, justice for Gordon Welchman and yeah. his beautiful little mustache. I know. How cute. So I have a few more shocking revelations. Are you ready? Yes. So Alan Turing and Joan Clark were engaged in real life, but it was kind of the inverse of what happened in the film. So rather than it being kind of a public display engagement in order to ensure that she was able to stay because Mm -hmm. her parents had so much power that they could just pull her from Bletchley Park, Mm -hmm. which... Could they do that? Once you aren't you kind of conscripted? Aren't you working yeah. for the government, the war office at that exactly. point? I don't think yeah. you can just be like, "Oh, I have to go" because like my parents say I have to go get married because I'm like twenty. Especially with all the clearance and stuff. I don't know. I don't know how these things work. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Winston Churchill would say like, "No, sorry, like yeah. she has to mm-hmm. stay here." But in real life. They got engaged for real kind of affectionate reasons, and they kept it a secret. Oh! So it was a sincere engagement. I guess they didn't want it to affect the team. Mm -hmm. And they got engaged despite Alan Turing um, being gay, which is why he did eventually break off the engagement, Mm -hmm. because he felt that that was unfair to Mm Joan. But... They got engaged because he had a real affection and love for her, and they did have really similar personalities and shared interests. That's all I want for my life. (laughs) I just think that's so beautiful. So in the film and kind of in real life, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is internalized misogyny. I really Mm -hmm. need to unpack this, but I feel like they should have gotten married. I know, me too. I'm like, guys, this is people. Let's just, oh, you, don't you just want to marry someone whom you can just sit around and do crossword puzzles with? No, exactly. That's what I want. Although, I have something else I have to break to you. Alan Turing wasn't that good at crossword puzzles. What? The entire foundation of this film. You had one job. Solve puzzles. Do you think <laughs> there is he... Could have done a New York Times crossword puzzle. I think if today he did the Sunday New York Times mm-hmm. crossword puzzle, he would have to Google a few answers. Yeah. He apparently was not some kind of crossword mm. puzzle savant, despite this beautiful moment in the film where they pin everything up and they say, you just broke Enigma with yeah. a crossword puzzle. Yep. It didn't happen that way. Also, not all puzzles are the same. You know, there's like mathematical puzzles and crossword puzzles are very different from mathematical puzzles. I, this is the problem that I had throughout the film is that I didn't understand, like when they said, you just broke Enigma with a crossword puzzle. Mm. I didn't understand the connection between those two. If Mm. you needed a mathematician, then why would something that's kind of basically linguistic be the thing that you used? I don't know enough about cryptography. But I know that exactly your point, that there are lots of other different kinds of logic puzzles. Yeah. But to go back just briefly to Joan and Alan, I guess my rationale there is that I wanted Alan to be protected. Mm. And I know that she did later on go on to get married. And that's what he wanted for her. He wanted her to be in a real 
heterosexual relationship mm. because she was a heterosexual woman. And, but I, I'm aware historically of how much protection that kind of marriage would have offered for him. Yeah. And I guess no. I wanted that for him. No, and at the same time, I wanted that from her because I remember when I was watching that, right? And even just thinking about this is this brilliant, smart woman. And again, it could just be me being cynical, right? And, uh, you know, I'm, I was thinking like how many other men would she meet who would allow her, allow that part of her to just flourish and allow her to just be that person that she wants to be? You know, I oh exactly yeah. I saw her being in a quote unquote regular marriage as something that that was gonna like you know dim her light in a way. So I noticed that during the war, Joan Clark mm. is. Um, I know she's Kara Knightley, and so she's beautiful and glamorous. And Joan Clark was apparently not so glamorous, mm. but it, I feel like during the war, at least. They tried to keep her kind of simply styled. Mm-hmm. Her hair wasn't like super done up and set. It was in mm. just kind of a really simple wave that she could have done at home. Her clothes were simple. Then when she visits Alan in the 50s, she's much, much more done up. Mm, like she's yes. definitely been to the hair salon. She has more expensive, kind of like tighter, fussier mm-hmm. clothes. Yeah. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about as well, that she got married, she became a married woman in the film yeah, and had to kind of amp up her femininity. Yeah, and kind of had to kind of, you know, conform in a way, right, to what was expected of her, which was kind of, again, in, in based on how she was portrayed in the film seemed to be what she was going against, right? Like, you know, that that little speech that she made about, you know, I am not leaving. You know, I'm I, I'm done like thinking about what other people are gonna be thinking about off me. So yeah, so I was kind of disappointed. Yeah, she goes pretty quickly from that to, oh yes, I'm engaged. Oh he's yeah. a wonderful man. Look yeah. at my tight jacket. Mm-hmm. So going from Alan's relationship with Joan Clark, backwards to his relationship with his friend Christopher. Mm. Christopher is a real person who Alan Turing was friends with during Mm -hmm. his school days. Are you going to tell me that A, he did not die, or B, he really was an asshole or something? Please don't say that. It'll break my heart. No, no. Uh, Better things than that. He did really die. Okay, but yay. <laughs> yay. <laughs> but the good news is, Alan Turing, it doesn't seem like, from what I've read, that he was so severely bullied at school. And he certainly didn't have to keep his very close relationship with Christopher a secret. Ah, uh, okay. So this is kind of like a theme in the movie, I feel like, that they try to portray Britain of the past as even harsher than it was. I'm not saying Mm. that it was great Mm. to be Mm -hmm. a gay schoolboy in the 1920s, but it's not like you literally couldn't have any male, close male friends at your all-boy school. Yeah, who else are you going to be friends with, right? (laughs) That's a little bit ridiculous. So the idea that he was denying that he was even friends with Christopher Mm -hmm. for fear of being outed or whatever is a bit silly. And the idea that he wouldn't be even expected to mourn him or Mm. acknowledge his death or that, you know, the headmaster didn't even acknowledge his death, really, barely. Oh, I kind of got that as... So I read that, right? Not so much as he thinking that he had to hide it, but more so of that was his way of trying to process his emotions because it kind of you know like like I I felt that the general theme that was happened that was happening in terms of his emotional like EQ right in a sense you know Mm -hmm. was that he was trying to find ways of dealing with how he was feeling and how and yeah interactions with people anything social so yeah so I read that scene when he's like you know vehemently denying that no no we weren't even friends blah 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 as him 
yeah, kind of like literally being in denial of how upset he is and just trying oh, to... Oh, yeah, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. So in real life, they were openly really close friends and apparently Alan didn't have that hard of a time at school, thankfully. Oh, thank God. And everyone admired him and thought he was really bright. Like the most hardship it seems like he faced was that at the time, maths and science wasn't considered as intellectual or appropriate for an upper class boy, mm. which I find Latin really Greek, funny. I so, yeah, yeah. So it's this cla- this idea of classics, like like uh, you need to learn to be a posh British boy, so mm-hmm. you learn posh British things. And if you learn something practical like math and science, that's the equivalent now of like bec- get, going into a trade. Right, yeah. And so his teachers were kind of dissuading him from that kind of thing. Oh. They're like, but don't you want to posh man? <laughs> and <laughs> he was posh. like, no, I want to science. Yes. <laughs> I want to math. Yeah. And they were like, oh, no. So they were very close friends and actually, he did die, Christopher did die of bovine tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And that's an important distinction historically, because oh. although we know from our Emily episode that mm-hmm. everyone be dying of tuberculosis mm-hmm. in Britain, mm-hmm. in the 1930s in particular, there was an outbreak of bovine tuberculosis, which wait, wait, is... Wait. From cows? From cows. How? As you may know as a listener, mm-hmm. I am a period drama doctor, so yeah, I can she... explain this to you. So people get TB, but also sometimes cows get TB. Aww. And there's a particular strain of tuberculosis that affected cows, and there was a big outbreak of it in Britain in the 1930s. So this is what is called a zoonotic disease. That means that it affects animals. But this particular zoonotic disease also could jump to humans um, by doing things like drinking infected milk, which is what people were doing. And so because of the infections in cows that affected the milk, there were in the 1930s recorded 50,000 new cases in humans of bovine tuberculosis. And so at some point, Christopher contracted bovine tuberculosis from drinking infected milk, and then it affected him for years until he eventually succumbed to it. And in the film, they indicate that he never told Alan this, but Mm -hmm. we don't know that that's the case. Right. What we do know is that they were such good friends that Alan mm-hmm. actually kept in touch with Christopher's mom. And he oh. would write her these really beautiful letters around Christopher's birthday and Christmas time that survived to this day. Oh my God, what a beautiful human being. Yeah, so very, very different from the way the relationship is depicted mm. in the film, which has this very traumatic like cessation right and just like cutting off from christopher Mm -hmm. forever until he builds a christopher robot Mm. for the war the last thing i want to talk about is that is in dispute i won't say that this is necessarily historically inaccurate in the film but Mm -hmm. it is heavily disputed actually that alan turing took his own life Yes, yes, I read about that too. Right, and so they don't mention this explicitly in the film, but on record, the common theory, the common suicide theory is that Alan Turing ate an apple that was covered in cyanide powder. And so it was ingesting that cyanide that killed Mm -hmm. him, and he did that purposely. You'll remember in the film... In the 1950s, after yes, he's been at the burgled, start. Mm-hmm. Yep. he is sweeping up cyanide powder that has been like toppled onto the floor mm-hmm. and he's wearing a mask and he's warning the cops, like, don't come near here. You can't, like, if you breathe any of this mm-hmm. in, it's going to be fatal. And some people think that that is actually a nod to a prevailing theory 
that that Alan's death was an accident and that he actually inhaled right. um, some cyanide powder that was in his home laboratory mm-hmm. and that the apple that was found near him mm-hmm. at the time of his death was coincidental. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So it's a really horrible, sad thing to speculate on, and I'm sure we don't want to do that. No, but just no. to let listeners know that this is something that isn't historically as well known as is implied in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although yeah, because it, what like, isn't that, in they categorically stated that he um, died by suicide, right in the film. Yeah, yeah, but what isn't in dispute is that he was convicted of gross indecency just for being a homosexual and homosexual acts and that in lieu of a prison sentence he did choose chemical castration mm-hmm. and that's super rubbish yeah that's i mean that's and horrible that happened, in, in and of itself right like what the hell kind of oh just the idea of like criminalizing someone's sexuality and then government sanctioned torture so yeah this this whole thing really, really, really upsets me uh, in many ways because in Singapore, and I was in Singapore when I first watched this, okay? When I first watched this, you know, in the cinema, in the moving pictures. So in Singapore, <laughs> um, Section 377A, which is basically a law that criminalized sex between consenting male adults. It was something that was introduced in the colonial rule. And... It was added to the penal code. It was still a law up until this year, 2023. Okay. No. Yeah. Now, I won't go into this whole thing because you, you all can go read up about it. It's not, it's not something that was actually... There was arguments that it wasn't really enforced. You know, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I grew up, there were gay bars. But it's I not gay, like... It's not the point. Yeah. It's not like one of those cute laws like technically in the state of Illinois is illegal to own a sex toy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you know? So the fact that so this I had arguments upon arguments, right? With people I knew in Singapore for years and years about this. Even though they were like, Yeah, but it's not enforced, it's not enforced. The fact was that it was still a law. And yeah, that upset me a lot. You know? Uh so when I watched this, you know, the first time, I always that was obviously on my mind. And watching it again this year, um, the re- very recent repeal of uh, 377A um, was also on my mind. So yeah, you know, it's just it's something, it's not something that was just in the past, right? Criminalizing of homosexuality, um, it's not something that's just in the past. It's something that's being faced by many people all around the world still. And even if, even in countries where it is not a crime, you know, as we are all very aware, discrimination of people within the LGBTQ community is still happening. So, And at the time of this recording, we're seeing that explicitly in our country, mm-hmm. in government attacks on trans people Mm -hmm. exactly yeah exactly so it's real right it is real it hits home and yeah you know so that that you know just thinking about it just makes me upset in so many ways can i cheer you up a bit with some last facts please before we go on to our awards please okay just a few fun things one there's a line in the film where Dennison, mm-hmm. Alan Turing's boss, says that he's just rejected one of our great nation's top linguists who knows German better than Bertolt Brecht. This is a reference to J.R.R. Tolkien, who knew German. He learned German from his mom, his mm-hmm. German mom. And he actually went and did a course, a cryptography course, at the behest of the government as part of a recruitment process for Bletchley Park, but ultimately he was told that his services were not needed. No! Because he was a great linguist, and they were moving away from that to people like Joan Clark and Alan Turing, who were mathematicians to crack Enigma. So it wasn't that 
Tolkien wasn't good enough. He was a brilliant yeah, linguist. Just, we all know yes. that. Yeah. It's just that. But I that thought that was a very funny what? reference. Wow. That's amazing. So the thing about um, Germans using girlfriend's names in messages mm-hmm. is also actually based on something real. So as you mentioned, there were things called uh, predictable elements, mm-hmm. which they figured out they could use to help speed along the cracking of these messages mm-hmm. and ultimately the cracking of the Enigma code. Heil Hitler, the weather, mm. and also these German officers were doing lazy things like starting their messages with the same five-letter words, like using their mom's name or their girlfriend's <sighs> name. So people were always lazy everywhere for all time. So if you had Finally, a German boyfriend, it would be A-L-I-C-E, yeah. blah, 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 whatever message, right? That's what it would do. Yeah, it would be A-L-I-C-E, the weather is cloudy and rainy, Heil mm-hmm. Hitler. Right. And they would crack that shit so fast. <laughs> So finally, one last thing. I'm mm. not sure you're going to believe me on this one. Do you know who was originally slated to be Alan Turing after all our discussion about uh, Benedict Cumberbatch being a great Alan Turing? No, it's going to be someone someone ridiculous. I don't know, like Brad Pitt or something like that. Leonardo DiCaprio. No! <laughs> I mean, he is a great actor, but what? How terrible would that have been? Oh. I mean, it's all just part of them trying to make this the most Hollywood-friendly, yeah. like, biopic of Alan Turing mm-hmm. ever. Yep. They threw Leonardo in DiCaprio. every dramatic twist. They're throwing bottles at the machine. Mm-hmm. They're shutting things down. They're like, exactly. you have exactly five minutes to crack yep. the Enigma code. Yep, yep, yep. And like, but then his brother's going to die. No, but yep. you have to crack it. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio then would have been the most Hollywood choice, but there's yeah. still a British screenwriter, I think. And yeah. so they still, they were like, we'll make it Hollywood, but London. Yes, thank God. Benedict Cumberbatch, thank you. Yeah. Yay. So do you have an award for this film? I do, so I had to think about it, right? Because, you know, you have to try and get over how, how sad and upset I was. But then I was thinking of all the really funny little, little funny parts that really made me laugh. So my award is Best Unintentional Burn. That kind of goes to Alan Turing for taking Commander Dennison's fine, you can, you can go complain to my boss comment, right? Literally and writing to Winston Churchill. And then Dennison thought yeah. that he had shut down that request mm-hmm. for a hundred thousand pounds by saying, yeah. "If you don't like it, you can take it up with Mr. Winston Churchill." Yeah, and yeah. Alan Turing said, "Yes, okay. I will." He's like, "All right, sure, I will." It's just really cute that he writes his little letter, and then he goes to like Menzies, and he's like, "Yo, Menzies, you heading up to London? Can you like you know deliver this for me? You know because you know as one Pass does, this right?" Note. Yeah, he's like, you yeah, know, I'm, yeah. But then again, this guy is MI six, so it makes sense that he probably would be able to get to Winston Churchill. But still, though, it's like, here, have a note I wrote for Winston Churchill, and de- hand deliver it to him, please. Thanks. Can I have one hundred thousand pounds? Check yes or no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Smiley face. <laughs> Winky face. <laughs> so mine is really similar. It is. Best joke delivery, which also goes to Alan Turing. Yay. Because there's this part where he learns that maybe he has to be likable. Yes. Instead of just the biggest asshole to everybody ever. And mm-hmm. so he brings everybody an apple. And then while they're kind of confused and looking at their apples, right. he tells a really cute joke about a bear. And <laughs> yeah. it's actually really funny. It is. Is the way he delivered it? Oh, God. It wasn't just the joke. It was the delivery of the joke. Mm-hmm. And I think that should have gotten Benedict Cumberbatch an Oscar nomination. Yep. Yep. But I don't decide these things. No, no. He's comic timing, man. Brilliant. Do you think, as a last thought, that mm-hmm. we should do a Fainting Couch episode 
on queried dramas. Yes. So that would be lovely. Yeah. Period dramas specifically about gay and lesbian experience in the past. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It'll probably, unfortunately, be very depressing because I know that's how movie makers like to do it. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we know. can find some fun ones. Yeah. So, like, our flag you- means death. Yes, that's wonderful. That's lovely. So, yeah. if you have any suggestions on yes. um, any queer dramas we should cover, you can hit us up on Instagram at Fetch Smelling Salts. At, at Fetch Smelling Salts. Right. Or you could email yeah. us mm-hmm. at fetchsmellingsalts at gmail.com. And yeah, that's it. Wonderful. And boo war. Boo war. And if you do want to wear a poppy uh, and you don't want to wear a red poppy, I highly suggest getting yourself a purple poppy. And there are lots of wonderful animal charities that will be selling purple poppies. That, you know, if you're in England and it's a thing to wear poppies and stuff like that. So not just England, like the UK. Get yourself a purple poppy. All right. And then people will ask you about it and then they'll be really bummed out by the answer. Yeah. Yay! Yay! Okay, goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye! It's all finished.